2: Good morning or good evening depending upon where you live and welcome to our wild world where we bring you news of what's happening around us and we are in very interesting times indeed we're hearing from a variety of guests who've been a part of making the history and bringing about many of the changes we have today often a part of the groundswell of participation in both the small and immense variations and oscillations we are seeing in our cultures, technologies, politics, and even how our media gives us our information. My guest today, Leonard Levine, has led a rich life with a varied background since graduating from Ohio State University in 1957 with a BA in English speech and radio. He's been a talk show host, a DJ, and a stint as a public information officer for the EPA. Len also worked in those much talked-about 60s and 70s in various political campaigns, from senatorial to mayoral to and presidential. From there, he has applauded the work with the U.S. Solar Coalition, uh, founded the work. I'm sorry, applauded and helped be a part of the work with the U.S. Solar Coalition. But alas, now is retired and living in Thailand. Throughout his varied and extensive experiences, he has volunteered his services in the Czech Republic, France, and Kenya, while having traveled the world to more than 41 countries and still counting. He currently teaches alternative energy and English to Thai students. So today, we're going to touch a few on these issues and more, from then to now, and possibly where we're headed next. Welcome, Len. It's a pleasure to have you on the show.
3: Whoa, well, i I'm very impressed with that introduction. I wonder who you're talking about. You didn't sound too much like me.
2: <laughs> oh, it's you, all right. From all the years I've known you, uh, I could give our listeners just a little clue. I met, Lent, well, we haven't actually met face-to-face, I don't think, but we nope. ma- met back in the days when we were both working and doing volunteer work and around uh, the Mount Kasagau and the five villages in uh, Savo, the southern part of Kenya. Right. So, Len, we've got a lot to talk about today. You're a fascinating man. So, um, why don't we start, since you've literally been around the world in so many places, how about we begin with you giving us uh, some background about you, some perspective?
3: Well, uh, I, I don't really know where to start. I could give you a biographical, chronological rundown, but I think what's what's really uh uh, sticks in my mind is that my formative years after leaving college were spent about three years in radio. I learned about uh, the way radio works. Uh, I loved it. I was a DJ, as, as you mentioned, and a talk show host. And I, my, my main recollection of those times were even though I felt like I was very good, uh, the most things, uh, the thing that attracted me most about that work was that I could come to work in a dirty t-shirt and cut off, and nobody would say anything bad to me because nobody cared since they couldn't see me. (laughs) And that's why I loved radio and felt like I could never do anything in television, uh, which, of course, is true. I never did.
2: I hear you you there.
3: Yeah. Well, after radio, uh, I decided to get out, and I spent seven years, I would say about four years too long, uh, in EPA, uh, as a public information specialist, I had a wonderful group of people that I worked with, and I learned something about writing, which later on paid off not only in political campaigns, but also when I had moved to the Czech Republic, uh, to Prague, uh, in 91, about a year and a half after the revolution, the Velvet Revolution, uh, the, the, that they stayed against, uh, that they, uh, uh, that they served against the, um, uh, the communist regime of, of the Soviet Union broke up then. And uh, I decided that I fell in love with, with Prague and, and Czech people, and I decided to write a book. And at the time, I, uh, my best, oldest friend was a sales rep for Pelican Publishing Company of New Orleans. And I told him uh, that I, I knew the president. I had met him on a previous visit. Uh, that uh, I wanted to write a book. Uh, I thought I could write a guidebook to the Czech Republic because I knew they, they were looking for somebody to do that, except that they didn't look at me because I was not a published writer. But uh, after spending a Sunday afternoon in the home of the president and owner of Pelican, they gave me a contract, and I did write that book, which was the first guide. It was called the Maverick Guide to Prague and the Czech Republic in 1993 just after the divorce between the Czechs and Slovaks and even though it didn't sell a lot of books I got great reviews so which I happened to have stored in a special place and so uh, after after that in in the in the course of doing that of course I fell in love with uh, Prague and the Czechs as I said and spent 17 summers there and during that time, I found it a wonderful launching pad for doing volunteer work because I was fortunate in that I didn't have to do work per se. I was getting some income from uh, some real estate that I had created in, in New Orleans and, or as the local natives say, knowledge. So uh, I, did the, I did the volunteer work uh, in a lot of places, but as you pointed out, Kenya was, of course, my Uh, I think third and and best loved, uh, I guess, sojourn or whatever you call a journey there. Uh, And as you well know, I spent five, uh, I spent a month at five villages and I had the unique opportunity to do something that I hadn't signed up for. I signed up for uh, doing a construction project because uh, many of African countries need, they need health clinics, they need computers. Laboratories and so forth, and I expected to do that. But it just so happened that because a couple of months before I had signed up and made the arrangements to go there to Kenya to Sabo, which was part of a, uh, I guess national national uh, uh, wildlife park that was uh, that was operated by the Kenyan government, but. Uh, there was a local conservation group that was in charge. When when I uh, when I got there, I discovered that there were no other volunteers from all, all all world, as I had expected, who would do essentially join me or I would join them in doing the construction work.
2: So you but found yourself in the top spot there.
3: That's right, and and they didn't have anything for me to do. Now I knew that part of the volunteer. Uh, attraction to this project was that even though I would be spending time in the village in one or more of the five villages I would have the opportunity to go on an elephant watch or as they say tracking elephants on the weekends to get in one of those four by fours and join a couple of other people from a conservation group in France and we would go out and track elephants and of course you see a lot of Animals other than elephants, when you do this, see giraffes and you see zebras and you see the, uh, the, not lions because you have to get up very early in the morning to track those, find those. But, uh, you, you, uh, see cheetahs and, and a variety of, of animals. So I, I got to do that, of course, on the weekends. But during the week, they didn't have anything for me to do. And because President Bush, had warned Americans not to go to Kenya because a hotel was blown up by some terrorists north of Mombasa, Mombasa being their port, Kenya's port to the Indian Ocean. So nobody came. They followed his advice and I was the only one dumb enough, I thought, to to go. So I went and they said, okay, uh, since you can't build these things by yourself, Why don't you act as a volunteer consultant and just check out the various activities within each village? Which I did, and I absolutely loved it. I was able to even not just listen to the problems, but I actually came up with some solutions to uh, some of the problems that they have, because they have to, a lot of these uh, villages have to join together to get water, for example, from Mount Kasago, which comes down to one particular village, but serves all five. So uh, I was able to do that. And one of the absolute highlights of my trip was that coming back to my, uh, I guess, uh, little hovel just outside the village, I happened to see a lot of local villagers in this one village kind of moving out among the fields and con- concentrating at one place. So I asked the interpreter, the guy that was assigned to me, to uh, translate when, when there was translation needed, although Kenyans generally know English. Uh, it's not a tribal language. Swahili is, is their main tribal language, but English is pretty well spoken, thanks to the British who, who colonized it back in the day so uh, I asked this uh, interpreter why are these people walking in the middle of the day he said oh he said there was an elderly gentleman who died and they're going to the funeral so I said well would it be proper for me to join and uh, he said uh, one of the he asked funeral attendees if it was okay and he said sure so here I am smack dab on the premises of the guy, the deceased, and there are like 450 villagers, all black, and I'm the only white guy. And uh, I I felt obviously nervous, and I had my camera with me, and I asked, uh, again, the interpreter, uh, is it okay if I take some pictures? He said, no problem. So I did, and I was able to document whole experience and realized at the end of the funeral that I was experiencing something that no tourist would ever have the chance to experience in terms of, of reflecting the life, of sharing the life of local people uh, that isn't formulized by bus trips or I guess four by four uh, vehicles going through taking safari through the jungle. You're, you're sealed off when you do that. It's Whereas, sort of the
2: difference between all the associated fanfare we have with our current modern-day uh, Western civilization funeral procession, and uh, it's oh. it, that's a huge difference that you were oh. able to witness on a very personal and private level.
3: Oh, yeah. I was able to see them actually, they build the coffin out of wood the morning of... The funeral and then they dig a hole about eight feet deep and eventually, uh, the people congregate, the men on one side, the women on the other and the women do the singing, the chanting. And after that, they walk around the, uh, the deceased and, and the, um, uh, the, the coffin is placed in the middle of all this huge crowd, and then after all the walking around and the chanting, then the minister gives the uh, oration, and when I ask about the minister, uh, who is he? Because the language, basically, it's uh, it's Episcopalian, which is, what is it called um, down in Africa? They don't call themselves Episcopalian. Uh, uh,
2: well, from my, my, my knowledge, understand. Christian... Um, no. It's usually Christian, Catholic, or a mixture between their local uh, traditional religion with some uh, minist- ministerial uh, preaching mixed in.
3: Well, uh, all I know is that uh, it'll probably pop into my brain sooner or later. But uh, the the resident minister from the village was not there. He was out of town. So they had to call on... Uh, Another, I wouldn't call this. course. another particular sect of of the Christian religion. He came right in. He didn't miss a beat. He said the same things. I'm sure that the other guy would have said. He talked for about 30 minutes. I don't know how he stopped. I guess I guess he ran out of breath. But after 30 minutes, everybody uh, stopped, and then they. Cooked the coffin. They had the bears and they dropped them in the hole. And then we had a meal of goat meat. Apparently, when somebody dies, the amount of, uh, I would say, the level of of uh, uh, community I guess participation. Uh, well, it's it's like there there's the poor and then the middle and then the upper right. class. So this guy was in the middle. Uh, if you're if you're uh, upper class, you get a cow. If you're in the middle class, you get a goat, and God knows what it is when you're on the bottom level. But we ate a goat. That's all I. That's all I can tell you. I'm not crazy about goat meat. Maybe it was the way they prepared it out in open flame. But at any rate, after this, I noticed that there were a lot of tents along on the premises on the guy's uh, yard, and I asked. About that, they told me, well, what happens is that the friends and neighbors, the people who are close to the deceased and his family, they camp out at literally sleep on the premises at the funeral uh, layout. There, they do it for about a week, and that's basically the, the story. So, so it's so, quite a celebration,
2: uh, a, not only of his life, but um, this, this elder person and the respect that is gathered around um, passing him on to the next journey. Um, did they give you any information of what their feelings are about life after death? Or
3: No, I, I really didn't get a chance to talk to that. But I did find out that the deceased was a gentleman about, I don't know, 60, 61 or 62. And why did he die at that relatively younger age? They said he had prostate, not cancer. He had BPH, which is a an an induration, which is a fancy word for uh, uh, when you, when your prostate when you get older for men, uh, your prostate increases its size, and it's the only gland. I guess you call it a gland. In the human body, that expands as you get older. Everything else shrinks. So he could have gone to a doctor, but he shrugged it off. And uh, two years after he, he, he they finally they they finally uh, diagnosed. After they diagnosed it, he died. He didn't have to, but that was the that was the reality. Well,
2: you've given us a whole lot of information into the insight of what someone you know trying to do the best that he can do an available person with resources and those resources are your access to information your vast store of knowledge from all the various uh, professions you would participated in and to be allowed in as a neighbor a friend a compatriot a companion into such a private ceremony I had to have given you Um, some insight that probably provided you with some interesting information for where we're going to be heading into next. We're about to take a break here, but um, what we'd like to get into after the break is some of how uh, these experiences here, working with tribal people, let's call it off the grid, in a very different culture, very different set of traditions, very different race, ethnicity, um, and how that worked in with what you're doing now. So at the moment, we're going to take a short break. So stick with us. My guest today is Len Levine. He's currently living in Thailand. So we'll find out how he got from Kasigao to Thailand and maybe a little bit of why and what he's been up to. So stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: ellie founded wild eyes foundation because she loves africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet she does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity it is irreplaceable Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one earth. If we don't care, who will? W I L D I Z E . O R G.
2: Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World, and we're with my guest today, Leonard Levine, who, as you can tell from the previous section of our episode today, has uh, done some very interesting things and has had access, because he's a knowledgeable, interesting, and highly varied background, to participate in situations and uh, celebrations and traditional ceremonies that your average person might not get into if they went on your typical tour. So Len, he understates a lot of his abilities and what he's able to do. He's a low-key kind of guy, but he's an amazing man. So Len, we were before we went to the break. We left you in Casagao, and uh, you came up, and I know you did a lot in Casagao in helping build schools and bringing water from Mount Kasagao, which happens to be a World Heritage Site, a biodiversity hotspot. So it is unique and that's why the people, the five villages around the base of this mountain, are critical and why both Wild Eyes and Len decided to volunteer time there. So from Kasagao, how did you end up in Thailand?
3: Interesting question. Let me just go back to the Czech Republic because that's where I started from from Prague to get to Kasadao, so what when, when I was in the Czech Republic I had spent like a total of 17 summers there and I would have stayed there even today except for one little development which I'll get to. Uh, the, I want to go back to the fact that I had only been in Prague for a few weeks before I, as I said, I knew I had to write this guidebook, even though I had no previous publishing series, and I did, and in the course of doing that, it took me about six months, uh, I learned more about Czech culture, about Czech history, than I ever knew about American history, and I actually today feel like I'm a, I guess, a, uh, not not a not an authentic Czech, but a, uh, what, what do they call people who are accepted as local people, but not really, because you they blend it in. That's it, I blended it. I I was able to to make contact with a couple of wonderful Czech uh, people and I'm still friends with them today. But in the course of doing that, uh, I actually, about six or seven years after I had spent summers there, I realized that I better learn the Czech language because (laughs) I'm doing everything else, so why not? And I did somehow pick up Uh, formally and informally, mostly informally, uh, the Czech language. And I can tell you that even though I can speak uh, a, a number of languages, I speak English, I speak Hebrew, I can speak Spanish, and now I can speak Czech, a little German also, and very little Thai. But I learned that if there's a more complicated language on earth, I don't know what it is. It has to be Czech. So Czech is more sound.
2: complicated than Hebrew, or...
3: Oh, oh much more, much wow. more. It, for example, uh, just, just to throw this out, has 57 different templates for nouns, and uh, everything is conjugated. You turn left, you're looking at another conjugated word. It's, it's amazing. Parts of speech is just unbelievable. But so- anyway...
2: It's one of those language where you add an accent or a letter or a slightly different pronunciation and you change the entire context of a sentence.
3: Well, partly that, but the fact is that most people, especially Americans, they come to Czech Republic and they see all these words in Czech and they say, oh, this is no problem because all the letters are the same letters in our alphabet, (laughs) except for two letters, Q and X. They don't have those two, but they have everything else. They say, this is a piece of cake. It isn't a piece of cake. After two weeks of intense checks, they quit. Because that's the the way it is. So anyway, uh, I had spent wonderful times there. The summers are mild. I made lots of friends. And as I started to say that I was able to create a lot of volunteer projects in different countries because they were a jump off from Prague. Easier to get there than if I had been in the States. So I did that and was continuing to do that. I had met this gentleman, Czech gentleman, who wanted to buy a Czech building. I helped him a little bit to buy the building. And he gave me an apartment for under a 50-year lease. And so I was just in fat city, as they say. And then in in, uh, 2006, I think it was, the Schengen rule kicked in. What's the Schengen rule? Some of you may know it. It simply means that if you're not in one of the 27 different European Union countries, then you have to get a visa, a Schengen visa, which means that you can come to any of those 27 countries, wherever your plane lands or the border crossing is, and you can stay for three months. After three months, you have to get out. And you have to get out, not just for a border crossing a day, to get out for three months. Well, that's a terrible amount of summer, because I needed to have about five months worth of summer. If you've ever been to New Orleans, you will know quickly that it's almost unlivable because of the heat and humidity, and the city is 17 feet below sea level, so that means that... Even though you can't get more than a hundred percent humidity, it feels like over a hundred percent. So
2: from Mombasa, from Tsavo to uh, dry heat to Mombasa humidity to uh, check or uh, to yeah, check, to check and humidity and uh, I was in and Arizona that, in July, so I understand what you mean. Okay. You wanted no to you keep didn't. moving. No, you
3: didn't. Wait a minute, no you don't, because Arizona has dry heat.
2: You're right, but I <laughs> was there in monsoon season, so let me tell you, it was an experience. Okay. All right, I, so, I, I get what uh, you're talking about.
3: So what happened was that I had to get out, and I realized that I couldn't continue to live that way. Uh, then I started looking around, and a friend of a friend said, you got to come to Thailand. And I said, I had been to Thailand on a plane chain, Uh, from Prague to Australia because I had an apartment exchange with a family in Sydney. So, it just so happened that it was on Thai Airlines, which made a stop in Bangkok, and they let me stay in Bangkok for a month. No additional cost. In the year 2000, this was. So, I spent a month, and I did what all tourists do. We took the elephant trek and I uh, saw the different temples, which are called Wat, in both Thailand and Cambodia and in Vietnam. So that was that was the month, and I, I forgot about it. So this friend of a friend who I had met in my first visit said, you got to come to Thailand. I said, wait, wait a minute, I've been there. He said, no, you haven't. You've been to Bangkok mainly. And he said, I moved to a city called Pattaya, which is on the Gulf of Thailand. And he said, you got to come. So I came. And uh, I was there for eight months. And in the meantime, I did some research and realized that those things that I could not do in Prague, which is to find a relationship with someone who is substantially younger than me, was impossible. However, when you get to Thailand, it's a whole different ballgame. So are we talking about the
2: social relationships, or
3: We're, yes, we are. We're talking about a man-to-woman relationship.
2: Okay. And
3: the women in
2: Thailand
3: and also in uh, in in the Philippines and in Vietnam, and I'm sure it's true of Cambodia and Laos also, are young. That is, they're anywhere from 18 to let's say 40, and they're looking for a Rich. I'm not saying I was rich, but they think all Western men are rich. So they, because many of them have had bad experience experiences with younger men, they said we we had enough of that. We're just looking for somebody to take care of me and then stability
2: and security,
3: security. So they're willing to put up with a lot of crap, which (laughs) I don't give. But a lot of when you have. When you have a September to December romance, uh, there, there, it's different and it can involve a lot of compromise, but it works. And so I had read a a lot about it. Uh, I did find somebody, uh, on those, on that basis that I stayed with that we stayed together for about three years. And then I realized that this is not working because she was Thai and she, the Thais do not speak English and they have a very difficult time learning it. So uh, I, at some point after the third year, I heard that Filipinos speak English, they learn English. Yes, yes. So I made nine trips to Vanilla mostly, although I went to other places too, and ended up with a Filipino girlfriend, and we've been living together for about a uh, year and a half now and everything is great i mean i I can't complain
2: so during this time in your various travels around the world you've been able to as you say blend in because you have a lot of skill sets you're an amazing man you're an easy man to get along with and this i'm not talking about our personal our our personal quirks and, and foibles but you just said three years later, nine trips to Manila, and you yeah. w- were able to create a relationship that is still working today. And yeah. during this time in Thailand, there was, oh, that little hiccup that affected the, certainly Thailand and uh, some global blips in the headlines, that uh, political shift in Thailand, the military coup. Uh, how did that affect your, well, your stay in Thailand?
3: Okay, well, the first thing you, you learn when you get your visa and, and get your legs, your feet wet, is that you learn the culture enough to know what not to do and what not to get involved in. Because they have a lay majest law, which means since they have a king, but he's, he's figurehead, but nevertheless he's a king and uh, the, the, the people love him, uh, they also have a, a prime minister. And uh, the, the, um, the situation is that you learn how not to do things that get you in trouble, because if you say anything negative about the country or
2: about the, the
3: king, they throw you in prison for up to 15 years. It can be a very trying time.
2: So, reminiscent of Kenya under Moy. Uh,
3: a lot like it, except that here we, we, they did have a... Uh, Prime Minister, uh, whose uh, name is Thaksin, who uh, was the first uh, Prime Minister to actually recognize and help the poor. The poor in Thailand usually work the farms in the northeast provinces, which is called Isan. And they were always given the short end of the stick with regard to a variety of things, education, health, etc. So he was the first to recognize that and to help them by starting clinics and hospitals for one thing giving them better ways to get more money for the rice that they and rubber that they produce and it worked for a while but also rumors started circulating that he was stealing money and he was uh, a lot of corruption as is the case in both developed and developing countries third world second world first world and he, he stole so much money that the courts, which actually were part of the upper class, uh, they convicted him. And he got out of the country, used his money to get out of the country, and he tried to get back in. Uh, they had an election, and he lost, uh, his uh, people that he wanted in lost. But then there was another election a few years ago, and his sister won the election. Because the people who live in that isan in that Isan area uh, outnumber the middle and upper classes, so obviously they uh, were able to elect his sister. But his sister was really not that clever, and they eventually the uh, there was a rice pledging scheme. I don't want to get into it. it's not worth it for too many details. But uh, she was accused of getting the legislature to pass an amnesty law, which covered lots of people who were against the government, but it also included her brother. And that started the fireworks, which led to the coup. The army took over the country, as we all know, or some of us know, by April of this year. Now, you can say, "Uh uh-oh, this is like Egypt. Or Libya, or whatever. No, it isn't. And it's important that we, on the West, in the West, understand the differences. The coup that was done was really a nonviolent coup. Very few people died in any kind of uprising or protest. And the general, whose name I don't want to try, even try to pronounce, uh, took over, and he has changed the government. He made sure that there was an election, and he won. He was he allowed himself to be uh, used uh, in the in the elections, his name to be entered, and he won. And it and it just so happens that the country is now generally a peace. The country is now functioning normally. He has amazingly brought different groups together, or at least kept them apart from fighting each other. And he's very well thought of. The only Problem that he has created, and this is probably true of every elected official, uh, or or every coup, I should say, official that takes over a country, is the first thing they want to do is stop the press, and muzzle the press, and take control of as many of the media outlets that he can, and that's what he's basically done. So it's even worse than that Les Majest Law, Law, because if you you, uh, say anything negative, not about the king, but about the government, in any way, they will shut you down. Well, Uh, we see a lot of that
2: going on today in the various wars and places that we're um, having conflicts now. So that's, that's, let me ask you a question. You say he yeah. he took over. It was a relatively nonviolent democratic process. Right. He's well, similar democratic. to Rwanda. He's actually made many improvements in this country. Yeah. So what are some of the, um, since since I'm going to assume here that the press is no longer muzzled, um, we could have a whole other discussion of why press gets muzzled during these turnovers, takeovers, shifts in from one type of p- political uh, living to another as, as the general, let's say, the, the underprivileged population who very rarely has a voice in these processes. Since right. that takeover, since that coup, are you noticing that the underprivileged, which is usually the the masses of the people, has it changed? Are people talking politics? Do they feel, I'm going to use a very... Um, overworked word here freedoms that they felt less fear than they felt before
3: no Uh, the fact is that the press is still muzzled Uh, in fact he in fact the 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 coup leader the the president he uh, prime minister I should say uh, the prime minister has taken a look at the sitcoms on Thai television. If you ever watch the Thai sitcom, they're all the same. They all have the same plot. Uh, usually the women are stronger than the men and they yell and scream at each other. And that's basically the plot. There's no, there's no touching. There's no kissing. You don't have to worry about that stuff, but there's absolutely, it's, it's vacuous and, and nothing, nothing, but he doesn't like it because there's negative people are not. Uh, putting their arms around each other and not praising everything. They're yelling and screaming at each other is what happens in most, if not all, families, uh, let alone relationships. And that's what the sitcoms are about. So he's decided he's going to write his own script.
2: So he wrote his own script and changed uh, changed the content and, and message he, of these shows?
3: He promises.
2: And what is he promising? That there'll be more... Um, Open positive. and and, and ways to work through controversy or conflict?
3: The key word is positive. He wants everybody to have an
2: upscale,
3: uh, an up, uh, whatever that word is, uh, uh, feeling about the country. He, he doesn't want negatives passed around uh, in, in Thailand, and that's what he's doing. But uh, that aside, and that's a big aside, obviously... Uh, I like to feel like I'm a big supporter of a free press, as most Americans should be. Uh, the 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 fact is that he has made changes that has assured businesses and foreign countries and trade that we're living in a very nice, peaceful, uh, maybe pre post-coup era. And so, as long as he is able to do that, the people will. Operate in a very, in a very positive and a very, uh, progressive way. It's just that eventually the chickens come home to roost and you gotta have an election in which he will not serve as a candidate. And that is scheduled for next year toward the end. Who knows whether it will take place or not, but at least the warring parties have backed off. And by the way, uh, a big development that is coming up next year is called ASEAN, A-F-E-A-N, which is a, a group of Asian, Southeast Asian countries which are trying to mold themselves that into an organization similar to the European Union, and I'll just kick off these countries very quickly, you have. Myanmar, which used to be Burma, you have Thailand, you have the Philippines, you have Brunei, you have Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, uh, if that isn't 10, I can't think of the 10th one, but oh, Malaysia and Indonesia, those are the 10th ones.
2: Wow, so um, usually we would take a, 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 go to a break here, but I want to stick with this conversation. Um, And so we're going to go on for a little while longer and take another break in a little while. So what are you seeing? You've got a Filipina girlfriend. You've been in Thailand for a few years now. And um, what are you seeing how this is trickling down into all levels of the, the society and culture? How is is everybody on edge? Or are well, they feeling a way that there may be a positive way forward? Or are they just feeling that they've been um, uh, gagged?
3: Okay, you're, you're talking now about Thais, yeah. not, not uh, foreign guys, Western guys. Yes. Well, I would say that most of them are, it depends on where you live, particularly. In, in the Pacquiao area, which is where I live, it's a tourist area in the past. And it has, obviously, uh, places, uh, streets that are famous, the walking streets, famous for prostitution and and, and uh, drinks and drinking, uh, which supposedly appeals to lots of Western guys. But it also is changing along with the rest of the country. changing in which way? Well, there are condos that are springing up like weeds all over this area. And the reason I mention that is because who is buying those condos, they are mostly today Russians, who now have developed, created a middle class, Who are, and then you have Chinese, and you have Koreans, there's uh, 10,000 Koreans living here in this area alone, 60,000 Russians living here. We have, uh, I don't know how many thousands of Chinese, and we have uh, indians coming in so this is becoming a very universal cosmopolitan area and at the same time what is happening is that's changing the face of this particular area there's lots of work for women for example in those professions but also to be able to serve the condos in shopping centers and malls and they are speaking a pigeon type of english And so uh, they are responding to the area and it is changing. It is changing from an R&R area, rest and recreation, as soldiers say, to a family-oriented area. And family means culture, family means higher education. So that is changing here. In other parts of the country where you have metro areas, there are changes coming there too. Bangkok is, of course, changing. It has seven million people. It is one of the great, I guess, cosmopolitan cities. And most people are focusing on making money. They've got to make money.
2: So maybe perhaps it's similar to Africa. Progress equals development, but not necessarily yes. progress for the individual to um, get. Higher up on this economic ladder because, from what I heard you just say, the middle class is not Thai, That's, so you have this multicultural group of people wait. coming in running the economy. So, has it really changed much from what it was before?
0: Well, me,
2: uh, are, me... Or are the Thai women still uh, a lower caste, so to speak, okay. in, in servitude, or are they getting into the educational process and finding? their way up the um, personal ladder, you know, the, the self-growth.
3: Okay, let me, let me uh, just try to clarify something. Uh, the, the middle class is Thai. Okay. And the upper classes are Thai but they're a separate, you don't meet them, you don't, you don't run into them. We run into mostly the lower classes. And the main problem that Thailand people have in connecting with the outside world whether it's traveling whether it's trade, whether it's conducting business, is English. They have a very, very poor rudimentary uh, uh, education system from kindergarten all the way up through college, and they have not invested the funds. They talk a good game, but they haven't invested the funds in teaching high English. And that's one of the main things that they need to do to connect with the outside world.
2: So it sort of sounds like they're leapfrogging into technology and progress of the Western civilization, bringing that in. And um, perhaps, so through this, uh, there's the, here's the question, is the Thai culture um, maintaining itself or is it being um, blended into this melting pot and losing part of this? or with this lack of being able to speak English, which I think you, you had said that you are teaching English to Thais. So how does that all fit in? So you're te- well, I'm going to assume you're teaching Thai English to those Thai people that have the skills to be able to start participating and access this new middle class, or at least the next class up.
3: Okay, to answer your, your last question first, In terms of teaching English, they needed at all levels. I have taught children from the ages of, let's say, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Uh, There are classes being taught regularly for adults, adults who are operating in ways where they have to speak English and they're not comfortable doing it. I have taught in a hospital where the staff needed because of the foreigners that came to the, come to that hospital. So uh, learning English is, is necessary at all levels. Even the middle and upper class ties, many of them do not have a good grasp of English.
2: Well, as so, you get older and start participating in different levels of society, the construction of your sentences and the language you use and the vocabulary must obviously grow with that.
3: I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe so. I, I, I just know they, uh, the, uh, the, the original thing about the culture, a couple things. First of all, they're very skilled. They make manufacture. They make cars. They make car parts. Remember when we had the re, uh, they, they had a recall last year, I think it was, or no, it was the floods in Thailand that caused manufacturing to grind to a halt. A lot of car manufacturers couldn't get parts. Thailand because of the flooding around Bangkok but in terms of the culture itself it's a strong Buddhist culture now clearly you, you can see it you feel it uh, there are monks everywhere they also celebrate Buddhist holidays and they pay homage to it and as, as, uh, as, as far as the, uh, the, the uh, homage to the paying homage to the king Twice a day, they play the national anthem, and you have to stand at attention and sing it if you know it, obviously, but at least pay, it, pay respect to it. So I think culturally, they do have a Buddhist way uh, of learning, of expressing themselves. I think that's part of why the coup was nonviolent, it's because ties are basically nonviolent.
2: This is amazing. I mean, there's there's so much so much information you've just provided us about well, first, how one person can with with some skills and has gone to college and lived a life and be able to transfer these skills all over the world and one person can find a way to make a difference on any level and that's a big important part of our wild world is helping people get involved and to do something. And I, as we talked about briefly earlier, I think sometimes it's critically important to get out of this continental boundary of the United States and go see how it's the people live elsewhere and understand shifts in culture and that uh, it's not always so easy. What we take for granted isn't there in many Absolutely. other places
3: absolutely i i can't emphasize enough until you get out of your culture and experience another point of view another way of life you will be very starved in your education that is not in books because you cannot learn about how people live until you live among them Uh, i only regret that i haven't been more of a volunteer in A different country, but I expect to continue to do this because it's self reinforcing. As I said at the beginning, that I experienced certain cultural mores and events that nobody, I don't care how much money a tourist would have, would have done. And I did it accidentally. I stumbled on it, the funeral, but there are so many other ways that you can learn what people need how they express that need. One, one quick thing I want to add, and that is when I was in Kenya, there was one highway. It was a, a two-lane highway that was being built in the middle of the, not jungle, but the wooded areas out in the farmland. And that was that was started from Mombasa on the coast through all of Kenya, through the Rift Valley, to Uganda. And the signs along the way, every few miles said welcome to this particular highway Uh, we're happy to provide it to the citizens of Kenya signed China
2: right. China is making inroads everywhere. Uh, That road is complete. They're building new roads so we could have a whole other discussion on another time of the inroads China is making across the world and the difference of their business deals versus, let's say, foreign aid. So what you've just highlighted for our listeners is that you have to step out of your culture. And even when you do, you come with preconceptions because it's so ingrained in your culture. So the other critical part that Len has highlighted for us is that if you're going, when and if you decide to step out of your culture and do service elsewhere, whatever that may be. You also have to be willing to have an open mind and fit in.
3: And one word, let me just add one more word. If you're not curious, if you're not, if you don't like new experiences, new challenges, you probably will not be happy doing volunteer. Because it means not only just stepping out of your apartment and stepping out of your city, It means learning how to drink milk with sugar if you're not used to drinking it. If you're uh, unused to seeing a a little kiosk, which is the shopping center of a village, you're not going to be happy.
2: So in other words, you need to learn and be willing to step outside your comfort zone and uh, be willing to jump into something that is completely different that may not have a comfortable handhold so to speak that you can relate to that would give you that sense of that you're home when you go to other areas you are you need to immerse yourself there which often today the western traveler doesn't want to do with the private safari you know you're ensconced you're isolated and you're removed from the people
3: right that's absolutely true, and I think that, but when once you do it, and once you learn how other people are really interested in your culture, and you learn to uh, immerse yourself a little bit in theirs, you want to do it again. It's self-reinforcing. Believe me, it's addictive. And, and, you, and you become a more interesting person in your own right, and somebody who has your own stories to tell.
2: Well, that's fascinating. So um, we're going to take a little jump here. Uh, We've got five minutes here until the next break, and then we're going to come back and we'll finish off um, with about, uh, and wrap it up with some experiences of what Len would like our audience to step away with. But right now I'm going to take a little jump, a side jump. You were very involved in the Solar Institute here in the U.S. How are you applying that, or are you, or are you able to, or is that, um, an issue th- of importance in Thailand, and how is that? Are are you working on any of that, or do you? Yes. Well, uh,
3: okay. Uh, let me let me just say, my experience. I was started out as an environmentalist, part of the Georgia Conservancy, when I was living in Atlanta back in the '60s, '70s, and uh, when I when I uh, left there to do some other things, politics was part of it. Uh, I came back and a group of us founded what we called the Southeastern U- U.S. Solar Coalition, although solar panels were not a big thing back in the late 70s, uh, early 70s. So uh, at that time, I learned, because I used to travel to the organizations that were part of this coalition, it was one of them called ASPI, Appalachian Science and the Public Interest. You can't whistle it. It's not a very easy thing to remember. <laughs> But it was, it was an organization started by a Jesuit priest, Alfred, in Kentucky, to try to reach so many people in Appalachia, which uh, arguably is probably the poorest section of, of America, and get these people involved in community gardening, in fish farming, in uh, growing crops like uh, uh, vegetables and fruits, in composting. Making compost toilets, making compost from toilet uh, waste, and other things. And in fact, one of the things that I was able to do when I was in Kenya was to build a solar cooker, which I was I did from diagrams that were provided for me by this Appalachian the Science uh, Appalachian Science for the Public Interest, which I still support today. They're doing wonderful work, and they're just one of of any of those organizations so i learned i had to educate myself into solar panels into uh other forms of renewable energy hydropower uh there's a there's a a university in boone north carolina appalachian state which you can get a major in hydropower part of renewable energy there are other of these colleges in the northeast uh i think in vermont and uh in connecticut so uh you, you, uh, well, once, you, once you realize that if you get involved in renewables, then you start to question a lot of the fossil fuel ads and the processes, the, the financial arrangements that they've made with the government over, I don't know, 80, eight or nine decades. And you learn how to educate people on a small level, on a local level. Neighborhood streets, until you can uh, what I call develop a flash point, which is a point at which most of the public says I get it, and they move in that direction. It's all about money at first, then later it changes. But my experience with the Solar Coalition uh, was really invaluable in educating myself to the problem. And now, of course, I support uh, a number of organizations who are working to educate people. In Thailand, we have no one citizen organization, but the government has already, I've been reading mostly recently that the department, which obviously covers uh, governs energy, is now making a major commitment in terms of the Thai Bot, which is their dollar form of of, uh, change, uh, in terms of encouraging and Getting different mostly commercial, but certainly uh, individual institutions to get involved our own condo uh, Development where I live is now considering hiring a firm to Solar panels on our roof. This is something that I believe is here now it's, it's uh, solar energy, I'm sure wind energy can make the same argument, can, in fact, compete without federal help. That is, without the uh, the, the uh, bonuses that they get, that the fuel, fossil fuel industry gets, they've had them, but they don't need them anymore. They can compete with electricity now, mano a mano.
2: So, in other words, Thailand can take advantage and leapfrog same as kenya can on passing over a lot of the mistakes mess uh, climate uh, (laughs) issues carbon dioxide uh, issues that we're facing here under the word of progress and leapfrog toward a cleaner lifestyle which hopefully would involve a larger proportion of the population and not just the political class or the upper class that seems to be a large part foreign and but are those the ones that are funding uh, this switch up to uh... new technology alternative technology or are you finding young ties getting into this business and changing their country from the inside out bottom up
3: i, I think that this is uh... uh a process a uh, 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 project in in motion, uh, what's the word we use? Uh, in
2: in process. In, terms,
3: in, in flux. It's changing. Okay. Uh, I can't say that uh, uh, young people are at the forefront of this. I can say that uh, there's an island 40 minutes away from Padia, and there are one hill of that island is filled with wind turbines. So you do see it in various places, but it isn't Controlled, it isn't centralized, it isn't, uh, uh, developed as an ab- absolute factor. But people do, especially poor people, as you've mentioned, they pay money for electricity and it's not cheap and to have an alternative is something that would be a godsend for them and, and I hope that I can encourage that uh, in my own small way.
2: Well, I would, I would debate with you in the word small. I think you've done an incredible amount, simply because you're willing. And I think that's the message we can take away today, our listeners, is that we need to step out of our comfort zones. We need to travel. We need to see how the rest of the world lives, um, not only in terms of growing our own personal skill sets and growth of how to live on planet Earth, But we bring skills that even one person thinking they may not have an original idea or that their skills may not be worth anything, if you bring those skills and your mind and your curiosity, as Len said, which is a really critical part of the whole um, uh, equation, the whole recipe, curiosity, and we are poised today on this edge of changing so many things And Len, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to be with you today to talk about what one person can do, that one person can make a huge dent in the way the world turns and get us back to a place, or no, I don't want to say get back. Bring us forward to a place that functions a little more easily on this little spaceship we call Earth. So, Len, I've... it's been fascinating. I would love to have you on again because you have so much to say. It's so reachable. You're so accessible in terms of how you speak. And you're exciting and you're energizing. So uh, we've got to wrap today. But thank you so much for being the guest on, my wor- uh, on Our Wild World.
3: My pleasure.
2: And uh, folks out there, you can find Len on Facebook He's uh, got a lot of fascinating information to share, very eclectic and from everywhere. So, join in, look up Len on Facebook. You can follow Wild Eyes on uh, Facebook also, and Our Wild World, and follow us on Twitter. So, that's it for today. Uh, my guest was Len Levine, and I'm sure we'll be talking again. So, once again, this is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World, and thank you for listening.